We are starting, though, talking about the 25 cent cup fee, which is now in place in the city of Vancouver. This is for cups that people are getting at takeout restaurants and facilities. And a lot of the backlash over this new policy, so much so that the policy is being kind of sent back to the drawing board, at least sent back for another look. And joining me on the line to talk more about this now is Sarah Kirby-Young, a Vancouver City Councillor. Councillor Kirby-Young, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. You're right. It is a gorgeous day out there. Uh, it is beautiful. Yes. Uh, can we talk a little bit about this? And fr- from what we've heard at this point, a lot of the reaction and a lot of the feedback given to council has raised concerns about the cup fee, the bag fee. So what is happening with this policy right now? So I, I want to say right off the bat that we didn't get it right. Um, and it's really important to acknowledge that um, in the first week of the rollout. And I think you and I did interview that first week. Um, the concerns and some of the gaps were pretty evident pretty fast. And so I reached out to the city manager and said, look, um, I need some information back in terms of what are we going to do to address these issues? We got a memo back from city staff on January 12th that said um, they had been in touch with some of the large uh, quick service restaurants and fast food chains, for example, um, who have assured them that a number of them are going to be implementing reusable cup programs. Um, and one of the things that staff have said back to me is that if they don't see that happening in short order, they can bring forward changes to the bylaw to compel businesses to accept reusable cuts. So that's one example, I would say, in terms of addressing some of those loopholes. But in terms of this week at council, um, essentially council put staff on notice to say, look, there's some challenges and issues here we're hearing from residents and we need to address them. Why not suspend the program in the meantime then while these issues are being addressed? It's a great question. Um, I don't think that there was support for that at council to take such a strong measure. Um, I know this council, I don't think that that would have passed and would fly. Um, But if I'm trying to look at it critically, too, I would also say that we have become a disposable society. We do have about 84 million coffee cups, for example, that just simply go into waste every year. And that's a huge amount. Um, We also know, for example, that Even with bags countrywide, we're going to see a plastic bag ban um, across all of Canada and every city by the end of this year. So this is really the way that uh, society is going, and we're trying to reduce that single use. Um, So I I think at least this gives a chance for them to come back and and see how we can address and make sure that some of these key outstanding impacts on people um, are are taken care of. And if we don't get satisfactory information back, then council is going to have to have that hard discussion around do you continue with the bylaw or do you not? Uh, was it t- too quickly implemented then? Because you're right, we did talk about this when it was coming out. And originally, this was supposed to be implemented. It was postponed because of the pandemic. But the pandemic's still going on. So it's not as though people do have the option of, of reusable cups. In many cases, people still aren't comfortable using reusable cups. So even just looking at that, doesn't it seem like it was a bizarre time to bring this in? Yeah, I, I think that doing it in COVID was a challenge. It, it was about a year's notice originally. I think council passed this in November of 2019, and it was supposed to take effect at the beginning of 2021. It was delayed a year uh, because of the pandemic. Um, and yeah, in hindsight, perhaps moving it forward um, would have been the way to go. Um, reusable cups have been deemed safe by um, Center for Disease Control, and they've said that you can use them. But, you know, people are, it was, it's been a lot during COVID, right? And people are trying to adapt and everybody's trying to stay safe. So I absolutely hear that. And also, I mean, given that so many people now are are still avoiding contact, we're still being told to use those measures, including social distancing. And that means a lot of people are using apps to order things or are getting things delivered. And it's not as though you have an option in that scenario to use a reusable cup. Yeah, so I've raised that also with staff because that's one of the things is, you know, with technology and people changing how they actually, you know, purchase products um, and how are we going to address that gap. And the early feedback I've seen from staff is also for businesses they're suggesting to provide reusable alternatives, right? So that would be a choice on your app, just like, you know, when you customize your coffee that, you know, you choose, you know, the cup um, that you're getting. Um, so that requires some additional transition from business. But we do need to address this pretty quickly. Otherwise, it's just a punitive bylaw for people. And what about the issue of people who maybe are are very much on fixed income or a homeless and who are now finding that when they're getting a voucher or they've got a gift certificate, they have to come up with that cash for those cups? So there was an incident. Uh, one gentleman who uh, went to a shelter 
think in the Fairview Slopes area, um, and brought this up that this particular shelter was handing out breakfast vouchers, um, and um, they had to pay the 25 cent fee um, for what was supposed to be a free breakfast. Um, address that right away, and the shelter for any guests that are staying overnight um, that don't have somewhere else to sleep are being given reusable cups, uh, so they don't have to pay that. And I think that's something that could be rolled out at a number of the facilities, um, whether it's the gathering places where people are getting meals um, and the meal programs we have in the city or at the homeless shelters. Um, but clearly, that's a, that's a group that um, really needs to be considered. Will staff also be looking at where the money goes? Because that is one of the issues that we've been hearing about as well, that this money we know is going back to the businesses, but it's it's in the educational phase right now. So there's nothing that actually makes it so a business is using that funding, using the money that's coming in from cups and from bags, putting it into environmental initiatives or putting it into ways that are making the business more environmentally friendly. So is that also being looked at once again? Yeah, and so a couple of things on that. That's when I mentioned that in the bylaw change, they make a change it to instead of the carrot versus stick approach, where they're um, sort of providing the onus on businesses to uh, invest and give them the flexibility to cover costs. Um, that might be a bylaw change to compel a business to um, take on a reusable cut program, and that has cost to doing that, obviously. Um, and I, I'm hearing two sides as well, because I'm also hearing from a lot of small businesses that are saying, you know, for example, that you know, bags or cups are actually more costly for them, right? So it would be better if people had a reusable or if people brought their own cups. Um, and so they're saying, look, we need some of this revenue to offset. So I'm really interested to hear from people in small businesses um, as council makes this decision on what to do with this bylaw moving forward, um, because there are sort of, I'm hearing pros and cons on both sides. Do you think then it is a bylaw that that works as a one-size-fits-all? Because I know we've been talking a lot about small business, but it's also changed things that if you walk into a B.C. government liquor store and that B.C. government liquor store happens to be within the city of Vancouver, they're now charging the 25 cents for a paper bag if you don't have your own bag. They're also charging 25 cents per paper sleeve if you're buying one or two bottles of wine. I mean, that money's going right back into the B.C. government, and that doesn't really seem like that's what this bylaw is addressing yeah well i mean i think that's the question do we actually need the paper sleeve um in the first place in addition um it, i've always thought that we have a lot of excess packaging um in a number of places that we go and so i will tend to take my own reusable bags usually if you're going to buy liquor that's not as much a spontaneous purchase it's usually a bit more planned different than when you're getting a takeout coffee um, or picking out something to go sometimes um, but i think we need to revisit how much packaging we provide to consumers altogether I know staff is now set to get back to council. I think it's mid-March. When would you like to see this tweaked or this changed in a way or the concerns that have been raised to you and other councillors addressed? Uh, Well, I'd like to see that discussion happen when we get that report back. As you said, it's supposed to come back before March 15th. Um, And I think that at that point, council has the responsibility to provide some pretty clear direction. Um, on what we want to do with the bylaw moving forward. We can't drag this out. We need to address it. Do you think it would work better as a more regional bylaw in that uh, I've seen postings from people as well saying they realized uh, the other day they were a couple minutes from the Burnaby border, so just went to a store or a cafe in Burnaby. Does a bylaw like this not work better if it's done from a regional approach? I think it does. And I mean, we could look at the ride sharing example. Um, and you might recall, I don't know if you and I chatted about this before. I think it was the only councillor to vote against Vancouver's licensing um, for ride share when it wanted to do a sort of go it alone, <clears throat> excuse me, made in Vancouver model um, where we were going to license um, cars. And we said, well, look, people don't travel that way, right? Well, when they're taking a car home, they might be enjoying a night out in Vancouver and they live in Burnaby or Surrey, for example. And so a regional approach made a whole lot of sense. Um, I think in something like this, that's also something that we could consider and look at. All right, Councillor Kirby Young, we'll leave it there for today. Thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your time. Thanks. Always a pleasure. Phone lines are open. Once again, star 9898 and 604-280-9898. Taking your calls if you live or work or spend any time in the city of Vancouver. Curious about your experience so far with the new fees that are in place. The 25 cent cup fee, which is actually 28 cents when you think about it. Because the fee, in at least the cases that I've seen, the fee is added...
after the tax on whatever you're purchasing. So I've seen receipts for 28 cents. I realize that's pennies, but still, it all adds up. 25 cents for the cups, the bag fees as well, if you need a paper bag from a store or a fast food restaurant. A lot of concerns raised, so many concerns raised, that council is actually taking another look at this bylaw. We just spoke with Vancouver City Councillor Sarah Kirby-Young. Rebecca Bly spoke earlier about this as well. Uh, on the concerns she's been hearing? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a piece of this rollout that is, of course, um, this this particular um, bylaw was debated by council January uh, 2020. And then the rollout was to happen January 2021. And of course, we're finding ourselves very much in the middle of a um, pandemic it just wasn't the right time. And so we delayed it by a year. So I think, um, you know, voting to bring this out this particular January 2022 with everything else going on, I think we just didn't go back to it with a critical thinking uh, lens and say, is this actually what we should be doing at this particular time? And there was some uh, undertone or narrative that businesses are have an urgency to get going because they have invested or um they have planned their inventory to not have these uh, disposable cups, single-use cups, and but but that's just really not how it's playing out. So I'm not sure where that narrative came from in terms of there being an urgency from the business community to get going on this bylaw. Uh, I think we missed the mark with this one. All right. At least, I mean, it is somewhat refreshing, I think, to hear councillors say they've missed the mark, acknowledge that they have missed the mark. I'm curious what your thoughts are on this. Let's go to the phone lines. And Mark is on the line from the West End. Go ahead. Good afternoon. Um, I find it unbelievable for the simple reason that the city of Vancouver has removed all those nice um, containers. They were three in one for recycling cans, pop, and then paper, and um, garbage. Now, all those cups are going in the garbage or all over, or littering the West End. So I don't seem to see how that can be recycling or doing any good when they're going into the, the garbage now with the new containers that only take garbage or tins or anything. So that's, and then the small... Uh, Ma and Pa restaurants, I went to check here about an hour ago in the neighborhood here, one on Nicola and one on Cardero. They don't get that benefit because they're not a franchise. Right. So, but they would still be having to charge those fees, aren't they? No, no, because they don't get the, they, they're not allowed. To, that's what they told me. I said, if I buy a cup of coffee here, do you charge me? And I said, if I, if you did, where would that money go? Well, we're not allowed to do that because we're not a franchise. So there's quite a bit to be ironed out, I think. Hmm, that does that does seem a bit odd. Just getting back, though, to the litter that you're seeing. So have you seen an increase in litter in the area? Yes. Yes. More than it, than it was um, for the last two years. Cups here, cups there, flattened out. And I mean, I don't know whether it's a little bit of a protest over it. Or, or what, but it's very poorly planned, and especially, like I said, when they took all the container things away in the West End and just only have garbage ones. So the cups are going in there. Right in front of some of these franchises, they have these new containers. So when they finish drinking their coffee, in the garbage. So that's not... I mean, it's very poorly thought out. I better let you have other people express their um, opinions. <laughs> All right, will do. Mark, thanks for the phone call. Appreciate that. Want to get to Judy in Surrey. Judy, go ahead. Yeah, um, I knew that the system, I thought, was to get rid of us using single-use cups. So I went to my Tim Hortons with my Tim Hortons reusable cup, and they will not fill my reusable cup but they said they would sell me coffee in a paper cup so that I could pour it over myself into my reusable cup I thought that's pretty ridiculous if they're going to charge us for it but we have no environmentally friendly way of doing it Were you at a a drive-thru or was this an exchange with somebody at the counter? A drive-thru but they said they couldn't they wouldn't do it anyway. 
Yeah, I mean, it does kind of defeat the purpose, doesn't it? If you're, if the whole point is you want to use a reusable cup, then you don't want it in a paper cup to to then pour it into to yours, and then you're still going to get charged the twenty five cent fee. Yeah, well, I thought the whole point was to cut back on all of that stuff. So, anyway, that's what I found. Well, we have talked many times on this program about standardized testing in this province. It can be a very controversial issue and some saying that it is not necessary. It doesn't tell the true picture of what's happening in a school. Others, though, saying it is the best way to get a sense of whether or not children have a strong grasp of the curriculum and have learned the curriculum. Well, some new research, and it was put out by the Fraser Institute, shows how parents feel about standardized testing. Testing. And joining me now to talk more about this is Paige McPherson, Associate Director of Education Policy at the Fraser Institute. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks so much for having me. Can you talk a little bit first, uh, taking a look, who did you question and how many parents were actually part of this research? For sure. So this is a poll that we did with Leger, um, a polling firm here in Canada. Um, it, it surveyed just over 1,200 parents, 1,204 to be exact, and that's parents of kids um, who are in K-12 to schools. So they needed to have a kid who was in school, needed to be between the ages of 5 and 17. Um, and it's a representative sampling right across Canada, um, so BC being included in that sampling. And but a random sampling too. Did, did Leger know, or did were there any parameters as far as the requirement? Like you said, was to have a child aged five to seventeen. Did it matter where the child, what type of school the child was enrolled in? Um, yeah. So the children. That's a great question. We we ensured that there was um, kids of both public schools and independent schools. So it doesn't include kids who are not in a, a physical school. It doesn't include homeschoolers, as an example, but it's children who are in public schools and independent schools. Um, and uh, and Leger does uh, a representative sampling of what would be representative um, in Canada in the poll to try and get a clear picture um, of both regionally and in types of schools. And when you look at the numbers, if we focus in on British Columbia, then as far as the findings in BC, what did you find? So we found that an overwhelming majority of parents in British Columbia support standardized testing for their kids. 80% of parents support standardized testing to understand how their child and their child's school are doing in reading, writing, and math, so those core subjects. And 43% of BC parents expressed strong support, but an 80% number of overall support for standardized testing. Um, Looking at the other side of the picture, uh, 14% of of parents in BC were opposed to standardized testing, with only 5% expressing that they were strongly opposed. And did it go any deeper as far as asking people why they were either opposed or in support of it? We didn't go deeper in terms of asking those questions. We did ask a secondary question just about assessment in general. Um, if they, if parents support fair and objective measurement of their children, of students in reading, writing, and math, and on that question, 96% of BC parents support some form of fair and objective measurement of students in those subjects, um, and only 1% said it's not very important on that broader question. And so really our more specific question was nailing down standardized testing specifically as that method of fair and objective assessment. And that's where we found that 80% support number. Um, One additional finding is that we found stronger support amongst immigrant parents Uh, amongst parents who are new to Canada than um, parents who are not new to Canada. So even stronger support of both that fair and objective measurement of students in those core subjects, but also uh, stronger support of standardized testing from immigrant parents. Hmm. And did did they say why or did you get an idea from the survey as to why that support was even stronger? We, we didn't ask um, as a secondary question why uh, parents support standardized testing. We really just wanted to take the temperature on this question, given, you know, as you mentioned in your lead-in, that standardized testing is a, a contentious topic. Um, and we know that during the COVID-19 pandemic that there has been some learning loss, according to parents, um, experienced by kids in schools because of school closures um, and, and other pandemic-related um 
policies and just general impacts of the pandemic. Um, so standardized testing being something that parents have identified as being very important to them at this juncture um, really might be imp- more important now than it ever has been. So we just wanted to to ask um, in general, do you support the standardized testing of your children? So this poll, we did it in November 2021, um, following when most of the school closures in Canada had taken place. Um, and, and this is really the the taking the temperature on parents, and this is what they had to say, that overwhelmingly they do support standardized testing. And did you get the sense, and I don't know if this was a question that was asked as part of this poll, but do you get the sense that sometimes there is a bit of a disconnect in the standardized testing, like what you're you're saying, looking at things such as reading, writing, and math, the standardized testing in itself, and what that tells us? I mean, there are numbers, obviously, and schools will have different outcomes, but is there, there a bit of a disconnect then in how people take those numbers or how much weight people put into those numbers and what they mean as far as both students and teachers? Yeah, so our question asked specifically, our question on standardized testing asked specifically, do you support standardized testing to understand how your child and your child's school is doing? Um, So we wanted to specify both of those things because, of course, standardized testing can give a measure of the individual student, but also overall how your child's is doing um, and and that that's what parents express support for in BC of course standardized testing is just one tool in the toolbox of student assessment there's you know, there's so many different factors right kids are at different stages of development for all sorts of different reasons standardized testing is really just the best tool that we have to give a fair objective kind of baseline measure where um, all students who are on in the same grade um, are taking the same test right around the same time to kind of give an understanding of, of how those students are doing and it gives that just equal fair measure um, so that we can have that baseline and then say, okay, well, what is now needed to improve? Because, of course, improvement is possible for every student in BC and right across Canada. Um, Improvement tactics and and what strategies they're going to employ might look different for every individual student. Um, But having that clear understanding of where they all stand relative to their peers is so important to be able, I think, to, to build on that success for BC students. And when you look at the numbers and you went through some of these, looking at the different provinces and the question of the strongly support, somewhat support, somewhat oppose, strongly oppose, the numbers don't vary all that much when we're talking about polling, when we look right across the country. Is that surprising at all that it's it's pretty uniform as you go province to province? Yeah, it really is pretty uniform. You're absolutely right. So the national average um, support for standardized testing that we found, um, 84% of parents support. So that's pretty close to that BC number. Um, We did see some pockets of stronger support um, in different parts of the country. Standardized testing had particularly strong support, um, for example, in Atlantic Canada and in the Prairie Provinces in Manitoba and Saskatchewan. Um, But really all the numbers, as you say, are, are quite similar. There's a very pretty solid consensus um, across Canada when it comes to parents uh, that standardized testing is something that they support and something that um, is important to them to know how their child and their child's school is doing. And I know there, when we talk about these uh, and we mentioned the fact that it, it can be a very controversial topic, uh, do you get the sense, mm-hmm. though, so this is what parents are saying, at least this is what parents are saying in this survey. Like you said, this is one tool. Nobody is suggesting that this is the only way to measure how a student is doing, how a school is doing. Uh, but do you think the, the pushback then comes from some groups that it's not perhaps that they don't like the standardized testing, but they don't like it when organizations such as yours take those numbers and rank schools? I think that groups like the BC, uh, BCTF, the Teachers Federation, have been pretty clear about that, that they um, are opposed to the rankings. Um, and, uh, and that, I mean, they've been also pretty, pretty active, especially during the pandemic, um, in terms of their activism against standardized testing in general. I mean, we saw the BCTF come out and say, um, that or have an increased push, I'll say, because this predates the COVID pandemic for sure by at least 10 years, but their campaign against uh, students participating in the foundation skills assessments. So those are standardized tests of, of grade four and, and seven students. Um, 
like I said, it long predates the pandemic, but they did ramp up that push and said that the tests are a waste of time, especially now during COVID, called on parents to opt their kids out of these tests, launched a petition. Um, So you do have the union leadership, um, certainly activists on these topics, but I would just make the distinction between the union leadership, um, which of course is activist by nature, and the rank and file members and teachers, um, because I can see that many teachers would find standardized test data very valuable, and many schools do as well. We hear that from many schools and teachers all the time, um, that they, they want the data to know how individual students are doing. Again, just one tool in the toolbox. There's lots of other ways that teachers assess students on a daily basis. Um, but, but to have that understanding of how they're doing, have that understanding of how their school is doing, um, and then look at other schools that are maybe comparable to them um, in terms of demographic or different challenges that they may face in certain communities and be able to learn from the best practices of schools that actually have improved. We only know that certain uh, that specific students have improved or schools have improved over time because of the standardized test data. Um, so, so I would, I, uh, of course, totally acknowledge that there has been activism against this, and that's um, why I think it is so important for government policymakers to hear the message that parents actually overwhelmingly support standardized testing in the province, and it is just such an important tool for us to understand how kids are doing so they can go forward and, uh, and, and better succeed in their educational careers. All right. We're right out of time. Paige McPherson, we'll have to leave it there, but thank you for your time today. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. All right. Well, let's hope they uh, figure out what's happening with the possible grenade that was found in that park near uh, Surrey RCMP or the headquarters in Guildford. We will keep you updated on that story. We are talking now, though, about Aaron O'Toole and a new report that takes a look. It's a post-election report that takes a look at things that went well, things that didn't go so well during the campaign, and some general thoughts about the leadership of Aaron O'Toole. And joining us to talk a bit more about that is Brian Lilly. He is a columnist with the Toronto Sun. Brian, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Jill. You know, I spent most of my career in radio, so I couldn't tell you how many times a host has introduced me to talk about a, a subject, but I have <laughs> never had a grenade being found as the lead-in. <laughs> well, I'm there you go. by this. <laughs> this is well, I'm, something. I'm fascinated. Uh, John, who's at the news desk, this just came in while he was reading the news and he kind of said it so nonchalant, like, oh, and if you're in this area, roads closed and there's a grenade. Uh, I'm, I'm looking, I found the release he's talking about. So, so to be fair, the RCMP is saying that it's in the investigation into a possible grenade, uh, but something they are, they are right now testing the functionality of the grenade. That is unknown, but we hope to have an update on that soon. I pray everyone stays safe. Yeah, yeah. They're hoping that it's inert, as we all are, but uh, they are right now investigating that. It it does kind of tie into what we're talking about, because Aaron O'Toole is having grenades thrown at him by some within his own caucus, and he's trying to survive and hoping that they're inert and that, that he's able to get through. He is in real trouble, but, you know, I do disagree with Gary Mason from The Globe, who's out your way in Vancouver, who said the other day his days are numbered. I'm not sure that that's what this report says, nor am I sure that's where the party is at. All right, well, let's go through some of what, what's in the report because we're starting to get a few more details of that. And I, was, I, was, I found it interesting because I think anybody who paid attention, especially to the election campaign and remembers the virtual studio and how kind of strong out of the gate he, Aaron O'Toole came across and, and connecting with people, and then that kind of waned or that kind of faltered, that, that's touched upon in this report. What are your thoughts on that? Well, so, uh, you know, I read the same report as you did, and I I disagree with some who spoke to Global News and and your colleague, uh, Alex Boutillier, who said that uh, O'Toole was uh, better on the road. He wasn't good in the studio. There are times when he was better on the road. There were times when he was better on the studio. It depended on how comfortable he is. And that's not uncommon for leaders. Um, You know, to, to give you an idea, they built that studio because they weren't sure when the election was going to be called. That studio was built months before Justin Trudeau went to uh, Rideau Hall and asked the governor general to dissolve parliament. They, you know, at one point there was concern that they were going to call an election 
over the spring and into early summer with a voting day in early June. Well, if that's the case and there's still travel restrictions all over the place, what do you do? So it was wise for them to prepare. And it was also wise for them to, if you remember, every morning at about 7, 7.30 Eastern, so before you wake up on the West Coast, Aaron O'Toole would have a video with the message of the day posted. This was pre-recorded in the studio. It was clear. It was concise. It was 30 seconds to a minute. It's the type of thing that he and his MPs, his candidates, his supporters could easily share on social media and spread the word. And and look, that's part of campaigning today. Campaigning today is not just making sure that you and I are, are talking about something on talk radio or on TV or in the pages of the Toronto Sun. It's about dominating all platforms. And, and so that was a good use of the studio. But there were times when he did look flat-footed. Anybody who is under siege can end up looking like that. At one point in the campaign, Justin Trudeau looked like that. Until, he, until Trudeau turned and made it about the vaccinated versus the unvaccinated, he looked like he was on his back foot. And if he had not found that pivot point, we would be talking about what are the liberals discussing in their postmortem about Justin Trudeau and his leadership? Does he stay or does he go? He also, it seemed like it was a turning point looking back at the election campaign as well, when, again, even though this wasn't part of the reason given as to why we needed an election, what was called the most important election ever, was the issue of guns once again and guns in this country. Justin Trudeau knows how to find a wedge issue. He's doing it right now with this trucker convoy that's going across the country. And, you know, what started out as a serious issue that involves supply chain questions and concerns raised by the Canadian Chamber of Commerce, the Retail Council of Canada, Canadian manufacturers and exporters, the long list of organizations concerned about this goes on and on. Trudeau has found a way to wedge it and make it about just those angry, redneck, unvaccinated, racist, white supremacist truckers from out west coming to despoil your beautiful central Canada. And, you know, and that's kind of what he did with the issue of guns. It's what he did with vaccines. Um, he, he turned both those issues into places that he could just find enough votes. And remember, this is the government elected with the smallest proportion of the popular vote in Canadian history. We don't elect governments based on popular vote, but we're talking about less than 33% of the popular vote went to the Liberals and they got the most seats. They didn't win the popular vote and it's below 33% of all votes cast. So, you know, that talks about how they were able to target certain ridings and specifically in the suburbs around where I'm sitting in Toronto, and in the suburbs around where you're sitting in Vancouver. The downtown cores of our two cities were always going to go liberal or, in some cases, New Democrat, but most likely not conservative. But the suburban seats would be up for grabs. And so Trudeau used these wedge issues. He used guns. He used vaccinations. You know, you talk to liberals or you talk to conservatives, and they will tell you that the change in the last few days of the election campaign was Trudeau going into the Lower Mainland and into the GTA and at at a time when Alberta was dealing with its highest spike of COVID cases saying, well, if you don't vote for me, we're all going to end up like Alberta. We're all going to have COVID and it's going to be really bad. And he swayed votes, particularly among uh, suburban uh, women tending to be under the age of 40, he was able to sway their votes. These women who were switch voters, who would go between the conservatives and the liberals, could have been swayed either way. And he convinced them on vaccines. He convinced them on guns just in enough numbers to win. I mean, he went up in B.C. You know, he about broke even in Ontario, but he went up in British Columbia uh, to to make up for seats he lost elsewhere. And all of it comes down to how he was able to play wedge politics and and voter segmentation, which is, you know, that that's not a knock against them. That's effective campaigning in the modern age.
So when you say you disagree then with the, the idea or with the ideas that people might be floating that Aaron O'Toole's days as leader of the federal conservative are numbered, uh, he did, like you said, he did lead the party that got more of the popular vote. They didn't form government, as we know. What what does he need to do then, do you think, to regain the confidence, perhaps, of, of those who have lost confidence in him or to, to, to get back to a place where he is secure in that leadership? Well, let's be frank. A, a lot of the people that are undermining Aaron O'Toole right now are people who were loyal to Andrew Scheer. I have asked all over the place, and I see no indication that Andrew Scheer is orchestrating this. If he is, he's doing it very quietly um, and very surreptitiously. But people like Shannon Stubbs and Chris Workington and Mark Strahl are conservative MPs who were loyal to Scheer, and they're angry that their guy didn't get a second chance. And they don't think O'Toole should either. Aaron O'Toole didn't stab Andrew Scheer in the back. I mean, there were a lot of other issues, and there were other people that took uh, Andrew Scheer out, which paved the way for Aaron O'Toole to take over. But these people are angry, they are bitter, and they are taking it out on their next leader. All that will do is ensure that the Conservatives remain divided and that either Justin Trudeau or, you know, there's talk of liberal uh, leadership changes going on, that the Liberals stay in power because the Conservatives are going to be divided. And so this backstabbing of O'Toole doesn't make sense to me. Uh, what O'Toole needs to do is follow the advice of uh, my, my Toronto Sun colleague, Laurie Goldstein, who said, call a leadership review. Call it now. Call it early. You've got the report. Uh, you know, did O'Toole make mistakes in the campaign? Absolutely. Were there technical and mechanical uh, challenges that they had compared to the Liberals? Absolutely. Back from 2004 until about just after the 2011 election, the Conservatives dominated in contact management. And for the average listener, they may, you know, they may like, I don't know, what's contact management? Why does this matter? They know who you are. They know the issues that matter to you. They know what will get you to donate. They know what will get you to put a lawn sign out. They know what will get you to vote for them. They dominated for, you know, uh, you know, better part of a decade on that issue. And now the liberals are in the lead and the conservatives have not updated their systems. If you don't think this matters, talk to anybody on the Mitt Romney campaign in 2012. Talk to anybody on the Hillary Clinton campaign in 2016. The ability to target voters by reaching out to them through regular media like you and I are on right now, through social media, through a text message and email, all of that matters tremendously. And the conservatives have been failing at that for the last three elections. They need to get either on par or ahead of the liberals, and they haven't done that. That's a big part of this report, by the way. Um, you know, most of the discussion will focus on Aaron O'Toole and his failings or his successes, depending on, on where you sit. I'm agnostic, uh, so I'll just, you know, call balls and strikes on Aaron O'Toole. But when it comes to the technology that modern campaigns rely on, the conservatives are well behind the liberals. If they had technology equal to the liberals, again, we'd probably be talking about what are the liberals going to do? Because they would not be in power. We are continuing now with Brian Lilly, columnist with the Toronto Sun. And Brian, you mentioned the trucker convoy. We've been uh, mm-hmm. following along and watching that. We're going to get a report from uh, one of the sites coming up in the next half hour. What are your thoughts, though, on what you're seeing and what's happening with this? Quite honestly, I'm in downtown Toronto. I don't leave too much. I've um, you know, gone from being a typical suburbanite to being a downtown Toronto elitist, sushi-eating, uh, latte-sipping liberal, I guess. Uh, so I didn't notice that it was going through. But watching TV, I see that it is taking hours to go through. Look, it, it's an impressive convoy um, that, unfortunately, the organizers have not been able to distance themselves from some of the fringe elements of it. That's allowed Prime Minister Justin Trudeau not to be a leader and say, look, these 
people have valid issues, I'll hear them out. But to turn around and smear the entire convoy as if they are all racist, redneck, anti-vaxxers who have no redeeming qualities. And if you watched his news conference last night, that's what he did. He smeared you know, an organization that has hundreds of thousands of people supporting them on Facebook. You know, some pages it's 200,000, other pages it's 700,000. They've had 80,000 people donate $6.2 million to the cause. That's something he and his Liberal Party would love to have in less than a month. I mean, he'd love to have that in a quarter, never mind a month. So there's a lot of support behind this. And uh, Trudeau just is using this as a political tool. There, there are real questions about supply chain issues. As I mentioned earlier, I've talked to the, uh, the Chamber of Commerce. I've talked to the Canadian Manufacturers and Exporters, the Retail Council, the um, Auto Parts Manufacturers Association. On and on it goes. And all of these groups say there are real supply chain issues. Trudeau's asked about that or anything that touches on this subject, and he just turns around and demonizes the people in the truckers' convoy. Aaron O'Toole published a uh, an op-ed in The Sun um, yesterday that said, look, truckers are our neighbors, our friends, our family members. They are our fellow Canadians. He called out the fringe elements that are bigots and racists and uh, conspiracy theorists and said, you guys are damaging a you know, valuable message. He tried to bring people together Justin Trudeau is just trying to divide because he wants to whip up his base. He wants to get the elements of the media that um, will only repeat his words but not question him, of which there are too many in the parliamentary press gallery. I say that as someone that spent more than a decade up there. Um, And he wants to use this as a partisan political wedge issue. It is disturbing what he's doing on this because – the public is not on his side. You know, a poll from Maru showed 64% said either let them cross or let them cross with testing. But only 36% are on his side saying absolutely no way. All right, Brian, we're going to have to leave it there. We are out of time for this afternoon, but thank you so much. And we will uh, keep you thank updated you. On, on what's happening with that grenade. <laughs> thank you very much, Joe. <gasps> Well, as you've been hearing on the news, the convoy, the trucker convoy, is continuing to make its way across the country. So we wanted to check in and see where the convoy is and what's happening. And for that, we are joined by Sean O'Shea, reporter who is a reporter for Global News Toronto. We're just going to get Sean on the line. Before we go to Sean, though, a bit earlier in the day, Brittany Rosen was out on the street and was keeping tabs on the truckers and on that convoy because, as you know, they've been going from city to city on the way to Ottawa to have a series of rallies taking place tomorrow. Here was what Brittany Rosen saw earlier and experienced earlier today. There is a, an extremely large presence behind me, as you can see. I'm all eyeballing more than a thousand supporters that are here. The Highway 401 is right there. You can see trucks are driving by. People are lined up all across the highway to show their support for this trucker convoy that has arrived in Ontario and is going to be making its way to Ottawa. All right, let's now go to Sean O'Shea, reporter with Global News Toronto. Sean, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Jill. Thanks for having me on. What's happening there now? Well, it's been quite a last few, four or five hours. Uh, we're just at the Vaughan Mills area, which is just north of uh, the city of Toronto and the city of Vaughan at a, a shopping area that uh, was filled with supporters, truckers, uh, uh, protesters, supporting truckers, a variety of people here, hundreds of people, probably from about 11 o'clock until about an hour ago, uh, lending their support to that trucker convoy that's moving uh, across Canada. Uh, A lot of vitriol, uh, Joe, let's put it this way. If you're a journalist there, it's like somebody being uh, an unwanted guest at a very angry party. Uh, (laughs) You're on the receiving end of a lot of angry um, uh, comments, uh, a lot of comments. Uh, There was a Canadian press reporter who was spat on, um, uh, pushed around. There was a, 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 another competitive news organization that was uh, 
uh, attacked by a drone uh, that was uh, put up by uh, by some of the protesters. The police are just interviewing them right now. So an ugly afternoon of uh, of protest, and uh, and so it goes. Uh, it'll be on to uh, on to eastern Ontario and to Ottawa later this weekend. Huh, that's uh, very unfortunate to hear uh, that uh, there are attacks like that taking place. Uh, Sean, are you getting the impression, though, uh, and we were talking about this earlier, the the core group or the, the people who originally started out with this idea, uh, is it is it a fringe element that has taken over? Or, or what sense are you getting as far as, far as who's doing those things, uh, attacking others while trying to make that point? Jill, it's a, it's a mix. Um, many of the people in the trucks uh, were, were quite polite and making the point that, you know, they were uh, protesting uh, what they say are the, the removal of freedoms for Canadians. But there's a really deep-seated element here of anger toward government, of course, the federal government in particular, um, media organizations claiming that uh, the media is not reported factually with respect to COVID issues, vaccinations, uh, you know, you name the issue and there's somebody at this protest here today and one's like it. Uh, I've, I've seen many of the people who are in the crowd here today at some of the anti-vaccination protests that have gone on in downtown Toronto over the last year and a half. A real mix. Um, and many of the people here, as I said, just very angry, uh, you know, and, and this is a place to show it. Many people angry at the media, too, saying that you know, we've not the other side of the story, the other side of the story from their perspective is that uh, the, the COVID-19 uh, situation is a hoax. Of course, that's what they say, that many of the people are anti-science. Um, and one woman told me that, you know, it's not a protest uh, in favor of the truckers as much as it's a protest uh, to support uh, more freedom. And when you talk to people about what freedoms they're missing, you get a very interesting set of perspectives because... We still have a lot of freedoms in Ontario and most freedoms, uh, but, you know, the, the gym comes up. People can't go to the gym. People can't eat in restaurants here and won't be able to until next week. So when you drill down, a lot of these things boil down to those kinds of issues, and vaccinations are a big part of it. A lot of anger about uh, what they say are mandatory vaccinations uh, in so many different uh, sectors. And it's interesting that, that you say that as well, because when we had global crews here, when a lot of the truckers were gathering in Delta, B.C. on Sunday morning before heading out, uh, that was kind of the the tone there. It wasn't angry. There was no attack on media. But a lot of the truckers that talked to us said, this isn't an anti-vaccination rally. This is a rally saying you can't force us to be vaccinated. We don't want to be forced. We want to have this choice. And I know a lot of people joined that movement as well, but it does sound... Uh, a bit like things uh, have gone a little off the rails. It's a bit of a, how do I put this properly, Jill? It's a bit of a soup. So you've dropped a lot of different issues into the soup bowl, into the into the soup mix here. Uh, vaccination is key. Uh, there's such a, a, a vitriolic anti-Trudeau sentiment um, uh, that, that, you know, we saw during the federal election last fall, uh, ramped up and amped up here. Um, and, and this is an opportunity for people to, to have their voices heard. Um, you know, many of the people making uh, what, what they say are very legitimate points. There's a lot of, you know, people that have been opposed to the continuation of uh, restrictions here in Ontario specifically. Um, you know, many City of Toronto employees lost their jobs, more than 400 lost their jobs for not um, agreeing to be vaccinated. Um, same thing with the Toronto District School Board, the largest school board in Canada. So people have lost jobs, people have lost livelihoods after making decisions not to get vaccinated. So many of these issues have, you know, boiled over and, and, and were front and center on signs which most of the signs I can't repeat on radio uh, verbatim without getting into us both into a, a lot of trouble, but you get the point. Um, and, and so I think we're going to see a lot more of this kind of vitriol going east and probably culminating in, in Ottawa on the weekend. And Sean, just to touch on that before uh, we let you go, what is the plan then as far as the uh, culmination of this in Ottawa? I would imagine there are going to be very many, a lot of concerns about more uh, attacks like you just mentioned, perhaps even worse. I would imagine there's going to be security. Do you know how it's hoped or what's being planned for things on how they're going to unfold? Jill, I, I, I can't honestly answer that because unlike many events where there's a press release and there's a, a media plan that's put out to journalists uh, that's followed, 
a lot of this stuff is more ad hoc. You have a general idea, but there's no central control organizer. And so it's very difficult to, to say specifically how that goes. But with respect to security, I can tell you, I've been a journalist for 40 years, and there's very few times when I've been, you know, uh, in a situation where we've had to bring hired security. Uh, today is one of those. We had two, you know, two security officers with us, one a former New York police officer uh, who's with us. And, and he told me it was very hairy out there. I mean, they were pushing people away from us three of us uh, going through the crowd. And this is a crowd of, you know, you know, fairly average people, you know, people that a lot of people with their kids. Uh, but once one person starts to get very aggressive, the crowd kicks in. And so they were pulling people away from us as we went through and, and retreated back to another area. So to answer your question, probably a lot more security, probably more security in Ottawa than, than you would expect. And you can expect a lot of people coming out. And that's based on what we saw here today. All right, Sean, thanks so much. Uh, Stay safe there, and thanks again so much for joining us. Thank you very much. All the best. Well, imagine being out on the water off West Vancouver in a kayak or any kind of boat, paddling along, and then suddenly seeing a pod of orcas. That is exactly what happened to our next guest, and Ali Shuparsky is joining me to talk more now about that encounter. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for uh, taking my story, Jill. It was quite the encounter with the orcas. Wow. So when did this happen? So this was last Monday. Um, I finished up work early and it was such a flat, calm day. I thought, why not go for a paddle? And it was the right day to choose that. That's for sure. <laughs> Sounds like it. So I, you were with, so I understand you were with your mom. You guys went off around Eagle Island off West Vancouver. So describe how things unfolded. Yeah, so we were out for our paddle, and we were just kind of cruising around, looking up at the the mountains, kind of just chatting briefly, but we were pretty spread out in the kayaks, and it was a calm day, and just kind of enjoying it. Finally, it's not raining, we were thinking, and it was really nice, and we were about to kind of turn around and start heading back to the docks, and then I'd seen a porpoise and a seal that day, so it's kind of like, oh, we've got some wildlife in, and then we kind of just like suddenly looked up, and I was like, mom, I think those are orcas. And then all of a sudden they were right in front of us. And we we're like, oh my gosh, like get our phones out. Like they're orcas. Um, so there are about six of them. And there was like absolute stillness on the water, which is why they kind of just surprised us. Like, how did we not see them before they're right next to us? Um, and then they're being followed by a flock of seagulls at this time too. So it was quite the commotion through the stillness of the foggy day. Wow. So how close were the orcas when they when you saw them? How close were they to your kayak? When we first saw them, they were probably about 30 meters out. And the big one was a little farther out. Um, he kind of just circled um, like he never came too close to us. And then we started to kind of like pedal a bit, but they're kind of going in a different direction because we know you're meant to be 200 meters away from orcas at all times. And then suddenly they changed direction. And that's the video that I was able to capture. Um, and you can see me trying to like backpedal. I'm like, oh no, like they changed direction. Like I'm trying to get out of their way. Um, and then when they surfaced again, they were maybe 15 meters off um, the bow of my kayak. And beside me, yeah, that's they were very close. That is very <laughs> close. And like you say, you're trying to respect the rules of, of staying away, but it's kind of difficult when they're swimming up to you. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> uh, so six whales in the pod. Now, I understand there was also a calf. Yeah, so there was the one really big male um, with the massive dorsal fin, and then there's also... Um, some smaller whales and then a calf and you know it's a calf probably within a year because it still has a pinkish orange tint to it um, and calves when they're first born have this I call it the salmon color um, to them and then it will uh, gradually fade as they grow up that's just amazing so you were able to to seek that kind of the that pinkish color of the calf it almost sounds like you were able to make eye contact with them I, I sure was, yeah. And uh, they were close enough that we could see their saddle patches, the patches behind their fin, um, and recognize them as transient killer whales as well, um, which means they eat mammals mostly. Um, so that was that was exciting because, like, oh, <laughs> mm-hmm. 
you're the whales we probably don't want to swim with. But um, <laughs> they were, I, I thought I'd always be like nervous about like them being that close because I always like, thought about it when I'm in a kayak. I was like, what if orcas appear? But it was absolutely peaceful. Uh, th- that was my next question. When you talk about the the biggest one too, with the big dorsal fin, at the one on the one hand, it just sounds so majestic and so beautiful. But I think in my mind, I might also be thinking, well, what if they get a little bit too close and knock me out of my kayak? I definitely was thinking that. Um, though there's a, kind of a few like swells coming in too, and I was like, what happens if I fall in the water right now? But um, orcas are pretty smart, so I think they'd recognize like. Hopefully, I don't resemble a, a seal too much. Um, but no, I didn't feel nervous at all. Uh, I was just absolutely in shock and so enjoying it. I'm like, this is outside of my backyard. Like, I'm looking at mountains with snow on them that I skied the day before, and now I'm on the water with a pot of a pot of orcas. Yeah. Have you seen orcas in that area before? Yeah, I've seen them a few times pass by here. Um, more frequently, I would say, in the past 10 years, actually. Um, but probably every summer, sometimes, we look up from we're on the beach and outside of Eagle Harbor, and we're like, oh, a pod of orcas. And we've seen this happen to kayakers before who've been out. The orcas swam really close by. So they do seem to like this area. Yeah, I, yeah it sounds uh, like it. How long was the entire encounter, do you think? Oh, we probably stayed watching them for about 40 minutes or so um, before it was almost too dark to make it back to the dock. Um, But they were around for a while and then they started to kind of head back out towards uh, Vancouver Island way, it looked like. But they they didn't really seem to be going anywhere. They're just kind of swimming in a circle and what's called spy hopping. So they'd come like vertically out of the water and kind of look around and one of them was breaching, and uh, which means he fully jumped out of the water. Um, so they're putting on a bit of a show as well. <laughs> it sounds like it. Uh, I mentioned as well, so you're a marine biology grad. You went to University of Victoria. Did that make it even more special, given that you've studied marine biology and, and have gone to school for that, than to be immersed in this most amazing display? It, it definitely did make it, uh, make it really special. I've kind of turned paths away from marine biology and it kind of made me think, oh, maybe I should, uh, I should go back to study marine biology and kind of learn to protect the wilderness that we get to enjoy out here. You kind of forget how, how much wildlife there is when you're living in, in Vancouver in a major city. So it was definitely special because I knew so much about them. Yeah. And you mentioned, too, that you took your phone out. You got some amazing video and pictures of the whales. It must be difficult. I mean, it's great that you had about 40 minutes with them, but it's got to be difficult, too. On the one hand, I would think you kind of just want to be in the moment and experience it. But then we have such desires now to get everything and record everything to kind of find that balance. Yeah. So actually, when I'm paddling backwards, my phone's in a pocket of my life jacket. So I'm not even holding my phone. So I didn't even know the footage I captured until I was home because I was like, that went through my head when I was watching them. I was like, I can't watch them through my phone screen when they're 20 meters, 15 meters off my boat. I was like, I have to, off my kayak, I I had to look at them. So like, there's a lot of footage as well that's um, just of the ocean or of uh on my kayak because my phone's not pointed in the right direction. (laughs) That's probably a good thing just to have it set up and then you don't have to worry about it. Yeah, exactly. I was just like, my biggest worry is it's going to fall out of my life jacket. And then I'll tell everyone, but no one, uh, everyone was like, no, nah, you weren't. The orcas didn't come. They don't come around over here. And I was like, no, they did. And, um, but yeah, definitely being in the moment and looking away from, um, from the phone, just like listening to the silence and the fog was coming in and being out there with my mom was, uh, was very special to me. Yeah. Yeah. How did your mom fare? Was she kind of like you just in awe of what was happening in front of you? Yeah, she also couldn't believe it. Like, we've never been so close to the orcas before. Um, and we were both just like, wow. Like, our paddle back to the dock was pretty much in silence. We were just, like, absorbing like, what we just saw and, like, what a magical place we live in to be able to do that after uh, after work. <laughs> did they, uh, you mentioned they were breaching and, and moving around. So, obviously, that noise. Did they make any other noises that, that you recall? Uh, they didn't make any noises. They were doing what's called like um, like tail flaps too. So they're hitting the water with your tails a bit and just splashing. And then the sound of their breath though when they come up um, 
to breathe it's just like boof and you're just like it just kind of almost echoes around you with the with the entire pod as well Oh, it's just amazing. And even hearing you describe it as much, I mean, I love being out on the water and that, but I think I would be so petrified of falling in or something going horribly wrong during a, an encounter like that. Yeah, I I honestly always thought that I would be like, petrified too and be like, oh my gosh, like, what do I do? But I, one of my first thoughts was like, oh, it's like those sharks, like, just don't move much. And then after that, I was like, all right, let's like backpedal and try to give them some distance. But it was no, no worries at all. Like I, I was so surprised. It was like, it's just absolutely peaceful. You just felt like they're doing their own thing. Like they're kind of curious. They're like, what are we doing out here in the, in the winter? But they, they just left us alone and did their own thing. <laughs> well, what an amazing encounter. Uh, Ali, thank you so much for joining us and to share your encounter with us. We'll leave it there, but thanks so much for your time. Thank you so much for uh, having me.